This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I just want to say, and I don't know if they're trying to like, you know, blow smoke up my ass or whatever, but someone came up to me and told me that I have a really great podcast voice. And I was like, do I? <laughs> you have a, you do have a great podcast voice. Who, who you told you? Who told you that though? Oh God. Honestly, I, honestly, if they're listening, they're going to, they're going to be like, you don't remember who told you? No, I don't because my short term memory sucks. But I do remember that you told me that I have a really great podcast voice, which really validated me because everyone hates their voice. Everyone thinks they sound awful. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, you know, as I've matured, it's leveled out or whatever. But you know what? I just want to say, take that, you bitch. Who? And by Who's the bitch. <laughs> pointing at me. I shouldn't. And, you know, this woman may have passed away by now. I don't know. But she was my clinical instructor for L&D. And she said, like, the meanest, most degrading thing to me that I have ever heard. And I've still carried it with me to this day. What did she say? She goes, and by the way, this is what she sounded like. I really think you need to go and take some voice lessons. I don't think your patients are going to take you seriously when you try and speak to them because you sound really childish. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. Nurse preceptor bullying. 101. (laughs) Go to a voice coach? Are you fucking kidding me? The worst. Where does one even find a voice coach? Yeah. I was like, are you going to pay for it, Mary? I don't know. Oh, my God. But what a bitch. Look at me now. Nursing preceptors, man. Just the worst. Co-hosting a podcast about medicine. <laughs> Suck it. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, if you are new here, Danielle and I have this lovely podcast here where you can hear our voices every Monday. But this week on the podcast... I've been looking forward to having this conversation with my brain. It's taken us a couple weeks to get this set up. But we have Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci on the WOMED podcast. She is, oh my God, her resume is so impressive. And like I fangirled over her. But uh, she's the lead authority in infectious disease prevention. She just wrote a book basically talking about how the global pandemic really brought to light a lot of issues within the nursing home industry and also really highlights the staff that is, you know, working in these long-term care facilities, fighting for more change and more resources. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Buffy. I've been so pumped for this conversation. I was, you know, prepping for the episode and and researching you and and when your assistant reached out to us, 
They're like, you need to have Dr. Buffy on the WOMED podcast. She does all this cool stuff. And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> well, I was excited too. I looked you guys up too, because I've had um, a couple of podcasts lately and I didn't really <laughs> know who they were. And they, it was, some of them were a little interesting. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, can, so you, like, can you spell how so? <laughs> I mean, one of them, I talked for like 45 minutes and he didn't bring my book up at all. And he was very controversial and like oh, went wow. into all these topics that were really, I'm like, I'm, I'm an advocate for nursing homes. Like he kept trying to spin it the other way. And so when he was done, mm. he's like, did you like the podcast? I'm like, no, do not air it. <laughs> and, and, and so he's like, well, let's, let's talk some more. So we did, but I was like, okay, I need to, I need to be a little more prepared. <laughs> Wow. Well, you lucked out here. Danielle and I both have had experience um, in your field. And I actually, since the beginning of the pandemic, really have been working for the Chicago Department of Public Health going into congregate settings, including a lot of long term care facilities, and a lot of nursing homes doing outreach for COVID doing mass testing, mass vaccinating, um, outbreak control. And so I feel like my eyes were really opened these past two years going in and out of these facilities. So Danielle and I are both, you know, have had personal experiences in your work. So we are both very excited to have you and to kind of jump in on on your work. Good, good, good. So, I mean, first off, your resume is so impressive. You've been on research teams. You've worked with Doctors Without Borders. You wrote a book and you specialize in infectious disease prevention. And I just... Jack and I love to know the why and like the how between all of our guests and sure. what what sparked this passion for you and this pathway in healthcare. You know, I mean, if we go all the way back when I was a little girl, take it all I, the way back. I was always really fascinated with medicine as well as mathematics. I liked both, and I literally was was like, "Am I going to get a degree in mathematics or am I going to get a degree in in medicine?" and um, well, you know, life throws curveballs. I ended up having children very early and married early. And some of that education was delayed. But from the time I was 17, I was working in healthcare and in subcapacity. And I decided to, I was working I'm a, as a hospital unit coordinator. I did that um, like for medical surge, med surge unit, um, cardiovascular intensive care for five years. And, and that role really threw me into the middle of crisis. Right. And I found I could handle crisis. Like I was like calm as a cucumber in the middle of a crisis. Yeah. But as far as um, infectious diseases in, in, I started going back to school and I raised, I was raising my kids. And in 2009, the H1N1 pandemic hit and people don't really remember that. It was I remember. Pandemic. Yeah. I got it and in Europe. You did? <laughs> it was yeah. really bad. It was so, and, and it was affecting more of the younger population. So I I always say like my worst day of work was when we had a 38 year old woman, she was like 39 weeks pregnant and she had H1N1 and she died. I mean, it was like, she was this healthy woman and died from this infectious disease. And 
I would see patients with necrotizing fasciitis, you know, MRSA and, and these, these just horrible infections, bacterial and viral. And I was just captivated. And I was like, I, I wanted to do more. So I was, I was in back in school. I was um, working, um, actually I'm getting my nursing degree. I was in nursing school and I actually quit because I had a professor of mine at the time telling me, you really should do mathematics. And I, I was like, well, what do you do with mathematics? You know, like, and he's like everything. And so it took me about a year to get on track with what he was saying because I was raising kids and I'm like, there's no way. But I, I ended up, I ended up um, completing a degree in applied mathematics with epidemiology. And I, and that's really where I saw wow. how mathematics can, um, that really shows how infectious diseases transfer in populations. I was a part of a research team that studied um, the human papilloma virus and how it transferred amongst boys and girls. And I'd go to these conferences and I'd have, you know, I'd have these people stopping at my posters and they'd say, but isn't HPV a girl's disease? I'm like, no, it's no. a sexually transmitted disease. It's it. That's how we get it. So, and that's really how I got started in that. And then I went on to get my master's in um, biomedical informatics. And I studied, I did uh, some research with Mayo Clinic and really got my hands in, in statistics and, and really utilizing this to, to forwarding um, infectious diseases. And, um, and then what really brought me into the nursing home industry. So a lot of that, I was always focused more on the hospital side hospital acquired infections, um, how, how we can reduce them and um, utilizing data and seeing, you know, how to, like, we have to know what we're counting. We have to count what we're, we're doing in order to measure it, in order to prevent it. If we're not measuring it, well, we're not, we're not preventing it because we don't know mm -hmm. we have a problem. And so in 2016, there was a national pilot study that I was invited to participate with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid um, services, CMS, and also uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. And we were going to help these nursing homes. The, the, the target was 15% of the nation's nursing homes enroll into the CDC's National Healthcare and Safety Network, the NHSN database, and start reporting an infectious disease called um, Clostridioides difficile infection. It's Saturday. That's my excuse for everything today. So <laughs> that's better than I could have said it. So, so C diff, that's easier to say. Oh, we know um, all about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And that's where I learned of the statistics of the nursing home industry. I learned that there's one to three million estimated serious infections in this healthcare setting every year, that 380,000 people are dying of infections in nursing homes. And that's one over a thousand people a day. And I was kind of looking around. I'm like, why aren't we doing more about this? Like, why are we, you know, the long-term care industry was like on the bottom of the list for any HAI prevention national projects. And um, so this was, I felt, our first opportunity to really start doing work in, uh, in um, this industry for infection control. And I, I say this was all before the pandemic. So these infectious diseases have been in long-term care for a long time. So to sum up, like I ended up leaving my, my job because I, you know, you get pulled in different areas. I kept getting pulled back to hospital work and I was so focused on long-term care. I said, I want to do this full time. And so, um, so I quit my job. I started my own business. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but <laughs> that was before the pandemic. And then of course, everything has just transpired since then. So, <laughs> yeah. 
thank goodness for you in healthcare because my brain and mathematics, I've always, I always thought math was cool, right? Then we had to take a statistics course and I, I couldn't do it. And I was like, what's the point of this? And, and now <laughs> listening to you, I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a very valid point to statistics and medicine. It just wasn't yes. for me. But I love that your brain works that way and that you've taken this this whole approach to really diving into our aging and, and elderly populations. Little backstory um, for for me, I was lucky enough in nursing school to, we had a sister nursing college in Japan. And my senior year, we went to Japan. We got to tour all the different like healthcare systems and like cool. really see yeah. the differences. And they're very stark differences in how they care for those populations and how we care for them here in the States. And, oh my God, our nursing home care is abysmal in this country. Like we lose all respect, all care, all dignity for Mm -hmm. people in these settings and nursing homes and long-term care. So yeah, when we got the email for, (laughs) for you, we were like, yeah, we we need to have her on. (laughs) You started traveling the country to to what just like study to like research to kind of like were were nursing homes and long term care facilities uh, receptive to you being there uh, while you were doing your research for this mm. book? Okay, so well, let me let me just talk about this. So, I've it's interesting because going back to when I was a little girl, I've always had a big vision to doing big things in healthcare. And I've always said to myself, why do I have to have a big vision? Why can't I just have a little vision and, and do little things? Like I've always said that about myself. You know, I was raising five kids and I had to choose applied mathematics. Like, why do I always choose these? Well, I don't think it's me choosing it. I think I'm just following who I am eventually. Like that's where I get, right? Yes. And and so I, it's interesting because I, I remember even young, as a young teenager, knowing about Doctors Without Borders and the humanitarian work. And I just thought, wow, this would be just so awesome. So when I was able to work on that pilot project with the nursing homes, I was working at a quality improvement organization through CMS at the time. And we had five states. And so that kind of launched me out nationally because I was able to work with multiple states and kind of understand the differences by regions. And then I also was able to, you know, work closely with the CDC's long-term care team and just really champion the cause of of reporting these infectious diseases, which by the way, we're still not doing um, in long-term care. And so I talk about that in my They're so forgotten. Why? Well, there's many, many reasons why. And, And part of that, and I can talk about is that we, we can't simply mandate for our nursing homes to do more things without providing them mm-hmm. with, the, with the resources and the mm-hmm. help to do it. Mm-hmm. We are literally setting them. And that's what we do. A lot of times the CMS or federal government will say, now you have to do this. Now you're mandated to do that. But they don't necessarily have the support right. needed to c- achieve it. And so there's a lot of challenges with that. So when, when COVID hit, I was, um, you know, I, my, my Phoenix based office, I was working, helping local, but also I was helping some uh, facilities in Baltimore, Maryland. And I, I had somewhat of a, a national reach already. I was, I always advertised as being able to help nationally. And so when COVID hit, it was just this, um, 
perfect opportunity for me to jump out and really help in the best way that I could, knowing that knowing the industry the way I do. And then Doctors Without Borders, I had I got an email across my desk one day basically saying they're coming to the US. It's their first US-based mission. They want to do it in long-term care and they need a infection prevention and control manager. And I was like, well, this is right up my alley. This is perfect for me. And so I, I was hired. And so that was in Detroit, Michigan. You know, we would go into these nursing homes. We would help them, but they were the hard hit ones. Um, And then we went to Houston, Texas as well. I didn't stay the full time at both of these missions, but Detroit, um, myself and another nurse, her name was Karen. She was, she's, I call her my French friend. She was really a champion. We knew we needed to do things differently than even what that team originally brought because just like you said, you can't, they had done somewhat of a, a project like that in Brussels and you can't just take it from one country or, you know, a lot of the team had been on the Ebola response. And so, you know, that's totally different than how we provide care in our long-term care um, industry. So there was a lot of training, a lot of um, just, we, we created a playbook basically to describe and, and to help with future nurses mm-hmm. and nursing schools and whatnot as well. So that's kind of how that got started um, during the pandemic. What I'll say is I, I, in the course of my work, then I got called to places like Idaho and like I said, Texas and Utah and because these facilities needed help. And I, so I was traveling all over the place and I kept hearing the same stories over and over and over again. And I really felt an obligation to the industry to put it in a book. Like mm. the story needs to be told because the general public only see what the news forecasts. And usually it's these horrible nursing homes, look at the horrible care, and we're not getting the true picture of what's going on. And so I really felt more of an obligation, like, let's get the story told. Wow. I think, I mean, first of all, that I think that that's a huge piece of information that we just almost like brushed over that the Doctors Without Borders for the first time had a mission within right. the US. I have a colleague that um it has worked with Doctors Without Borders MSF for over a decade and I remember she was telling me this that for the first time America's the one with the problem. Like we are the one with a right. huge problem that needs international uh, attention, which is just I mean so mind-blowing and and honestly so devastating that that's where we got to at a point in the pandemic where one of the most wealthy developed nations in the world needs needs this kind of attention, right? Um, so one that that's just so mind blowing. But I want to dig a little bit further into some of these misconceptions that you're talking about in the book that we're kind of starting to uncover these misconceptions about nursing homes. Can you shed a little bit of light without, you know, spoiling too much of your incredible book? But give us <laughs> yes. a little bit of light. Like what, what are some of those misconceptions that you saw like through the pandemic and um, and before? Well, you know, in this country, like we had discussed earlier, we don't have a high respect for our long-term care industries, even in healthcare. I remember working in the hospital and they were referred to as the stepchild. Like we, we don't have a respect for the workers. We don't have a respect for what they do. And, and, you know, that's, that's the industry. Even like, um, Um, not to cut you off, but even like, I'm sure you guys have heard of like skilled nursing facility and how we like shorten it as a sniff to me like that that right. term is just so like just sounds derogatory like oh they're going to a sniff, sniff. it's like right. it, it right. just is it's just like a derogatory yeah. yeah 
Right. And and so that's that's the first thing. Then we have, and I describe this in my book, we have all this evidence and statistics that we have this problem in long-term care, but they're the last on the priority list to actually work on these infections. The staff, they have high patient to staff ratios. So, you know, it's funny, I was talking to my mom and she's like, we should just send in more surveyors and cite them. And I'm like, you know, I love that you said that because that is the total misconception of our entire country is we should just punish them. But I said to her, mom, if you were a nurse and you had 20 patients to care for, how could you deliver quality care? Is it even physically possible? And she's like, oh, I didn't think about that. And that's, we don't think about that, you know? So no. we, we don't have the, the tools as our staff. We don't, the reimbursements from Medicaid or, and our Medicare are so low that we're, you know, they're, they get the very bare minimum. So it doesn't, it's the system is not set up to support, but just like what she said, the way that the government handles it is more surveys, more surveys, more surveys, let's cite them, let's punish them. And that's really the problem. That is such a huge problem that we have in this country. I love that you brought that up with just patient ratios in these healthcare facilities, because you have Christian Ganey, who was just prosecuted for the death of her patient. Right. She had a, a 39 patient caseload. Right. 39 patients. Yeah. I mean, come on. That, well, A, like, there's a lot with that situation. That patient should have been, like, you know, sent to a hospital, you know, for that fall to get checked out. But, like, there's no way, there's no right. physical way for her to be able to provide that level of nursing care, that patient was a one-to-one. She had right. 39 patients. Right. Do you see that as like staffing issues as one of like the main issues to oh. providing like adequate care in nursing homes? Absolutely. And and so then what happens and 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 you know this as a nurse is then you you get burned out. Like why are you gonna put yourself like there's a we get into healthcare because we're compassionate and we care and we want to help. And then you have all these patients and it is, you are going against your own morals, your own values. I think they call it moral injury mm -hmm. is the term that I've heard is that <laughs> you are going against your own values and you know, you're not able to deliver the care that they need and deserve. You get burned out, I, you know, and this was before the pandemic too. When I was working, um, even before the pandemic, I saw even on this national pilot, I was working with the nursing homes. We saw on average a 50% turnover in staff every year. And now after the pandemic, now after everybody is beat up and bruised and exhausted and, and defeated, especially in long-term care, they're like, I'm out. And what I'm starting to see that I haven't seen before is I'm seeing the leadership team turnover, the, the, the leaders that have been there for decades, they're like, I'm done. Like, I can't do this anymore. And so my really cry and plea to the public is we have to do more to support this industry, come alongside of them, or we're going to wake up and not have this healthcare available to us when we need it. And then they're either going to bog down the hospitals with more care, or we're, they're going to go home. And we need this level of care for our loved ones. We need it. But it leads you to this question of like, what do we do? Like, what does at a certain point, like, is this just a 
um, a decision that needs to be federally supported and with with money, you know, how, how can we start to support an industry that has been historically overlooked and not given the the support and the resources that it deserves? Well, I want to I want to bring back to two points. First, what you had mentioned with Doctors Without Borders and how we as the United States needed this care. Yeah, Doctors Without Borders has been in existence for 50 years and they never came to the U.S. When I worked with that team and I talk about this in my book, the team were flabbergasted. They said this was the hardest mission they ever had. It was the most confusing because it it was the federal government and the state surveyors that were dictating every single move that we made, not evidence-based practices, not what we felt like we needed to do. And all CMS surveys were put on hold during the pandemic, except for nursing homes. They actually, the government funded $80 million to have targeted targeted infection control surveys for nursing homes. So when they were in an outbreak, instead of coming in to help, you had surveyors coming in when you had half your staff gone because they were sick or um, quit when they didn't have the PPE they needed. And they came in not to help, but to, they had their little clipboard and their, their pen. And they literally would watch every move the staff made and cite them for what they did wrong. Now, if you, you know, if you're in the middle of a crisis, I know I've literally got chills at the toe right now when I talk about it, but when you're in the middle of a crisis, think about it. Is that the time for a surveyor to come in and, and check on your, your basic practices? There was nothing basic about COVID. And so even, even funding, even funding was tied towards quality. This is not the time for quality improvement project. The immediate jeopardies tripled in 2020 from the year prior. And it it was, and that's where a lot of my calls came from. They're like, Bucky, we have a CMS citation. We have a CMS citation. And, and they spent so many working hours, pushing paperwork, having to comply with the surveyors instead of being able to dedicate that time to the staff. And that was the number one complaint that I got from nursing homes across the country is we just want to take care of our residents and we're dealing with this stupid survey process that is preventing us from caring for our residents. I mean, regulatory is important. The survey process is important. I will always back it up. But what was done during a crisis was completely inappropriate. And there is a call right now from the the Biden administration for $500 million to go for a survey and survey process for the nursing homes to have more surveys. And I say, can we use this funding for for support, for collaboration? For staff? For staff, like let's help them instead of constantly thinking we're going to punish them, we're going to punish them, we're going to punish them, and that's going to make them change. It's not. And I... I saw the effect. What happens is they get a a bad survey. They fix it within 10 days. They push a bunch of paperwork to show the state they're compliant. And then they move on. There's there's no long-term solution to that. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, if you have a surveyor that comes in that doesn't tell them they're doing something wrong, and they clearly are, they think they're okay. So all of our decisions are dictated on a surveyor who doesn't have to be even a a clinical person. So Mm -hmm. it's just backwards. And I think, you know, the fact that 
Doctors Without Borders, when we were working there, they're like, this is a long-term problem. We This isn't even acute. Like, this isn't like fixing a broken arm. Like, this is long-term. And how do we even, how do we get in? The nursing homes didn't want us in because they didn't trust us. And they think we're they're going to get in trouble. If a surveyor showed up, we were told to leave. Like, their help was there. And we were told to leave so they could work with the survey process. So it's just backwards. That's why I wrote the book Broken, because it's a broken system. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it's like um, exactly what you said. It's just designed to fail. There, there's no one is winning mm-hmm. in, in the, the situation of our long-term care facilities. And, you know, I often try to explain to people what it was like as a nurse going into these nursing homes and long-term care facilities during the pandemic when, you know, similarly, like when, when they were going through massive outbreaks, that's why we were there. We would go and do um, mass testing and outbreak control when they were in the thick of a thick of an outbreak. And I try to explain to people like what it was like. And all I can try to say is, is just absolute chaos, chaos. And, and it's honestly just, it was horrifying. It was horrifying. And it was so sad. And when you're dealing with something so infectious as COVID and you don't have room or support to like, what do you do? There were some nursing homes that would like block off an entire hallway and just like have to put all of the COVID positive patients like down this hallway. And it was like, they'd put a a tarp over the hallway door with um, like caution tape. It's like literally out of a movie. Right. Yeah. You know, for me and for this, for the industry and, and I would ask, this is what I say to all long-term care um, staff as well is, is we need to, um, we need to look at mental health too, because I, I really wrote the book in a, in a, in a way to, for my, my own therapy really. And um, we need to, we need to rally alongside of our staff and really help them get through this because I'm going to tell you ladies too, we're not, we're not done. I'm, I'm still in nursing homes all the time. I was in Minnesota a week ago and two of the buildings I had had over 20 residents with COVID. So mm-hmm. where the whole country is like, we're good, we're good, we're good. We're not. I, and we're still seeing it. And the staff are still needing to wear the PPE and do all of the precautions and whatnot. Um, so I, I think, you know, you had you had asked, what do we do? Is it just a matter of throwing money at it? Part of the reason why the system is so punitive is it as it is, is because there are bad actors. There are there are corporations, there are individuals, stakeholders that that when money comes from the government, it get, goes in their pocket and it doesn't get to the frontline staff. And so we we do need federal funding, but we need accountability with it so that we know that that funding is actually going to the CNAs, is going to the nurses, is going to our housekeepers, and that it's not getting lost somewhere in between there. So we do need funding, but we need accountability mm-hmm. with it. Right, mm-hmm. right. I really feel like we need, I don't know if it's like a reframe, but we just, there's just such a lack of care and like forgottenness when it comes to the elderly populations and what they deserve is like a standard level of care. Like Mm -hmm. why is one nurse and like maybe like two CNAs okay for 20 patients? Mm -hmm. Like these are some of these patients you... I mean, that's why I feel like nursing homes are just so depressing because all people do is sit there, but there's not enough people to facilitate activities or like fun things to do. And it's just, it's such a heartbreaking 
it's a heartbreaking place. Yes and no. And, you know, it can be. It it definitely can be. And what I want to say is we've come a long way. So in my book, I describe my, my grandparents that were in a nursing home in the early nineties. And I was very young. I was 19. I didn't know what I didn't know. I, and I would, I would imagine this is not necessarily too far from what happens today. If your loved one needs this care, they go in to receive this care. And it just really depends on the facility, how much you're involved but, you know, I, I know like I, it, in working very closely and intimately with these facilities, I mean, some facilities I would I would spend weeks at helping them, you know, and so you become I became very close with the staff. I became very yeah. close to the residents. And what I what I know to be true is the staff that are working in long term care have to be the most compassionate people I've ever met in my life the most patient people I've ever met in my life. And this is a hard field. I mean, if you think about it, like we couldn't care for my grandparents. It's two people, right? Because of their age, because of their mental decline. So imagine then your entire facility of the same type of level of care that's required. It's hard, hard work, and it's mm-hmm. mentally hard. Sometimes the residents, they're not, they have mental decline, so they may be screaming at you, or, you know, they're not aware of it. And I mean, I was helping a housekeeper the other day, and we run the dementia unit, and, you know, the there was a resident that was coming up and getting in our cart, and, you know, we want, of course, keep her safe, so we're, you know, redirecting her, but this is this is what they encounter every day, and so, and this is why I'm so passionate about it, because the people that are working in these facilities, oh my gosh, they love what they do. You know, really they do. If they, they've made a career out of it, they love what they do and they mm-hmm. want to care for our elderly. And so my petition, and it's not everybody, I'm not saying it's everybody, but you know, from what I've observed in hundreds of facilities is it's their family. So when COVID hit, and they didn't have the PPE. They were really like the, the community was outraged because our hospitals couldn't get it. I was working with facilities that were duct taping garbage bags together because we couldn't get anything for them, <sighs> you know, and then they would lose their residents. Maybe 20, 30 residents would die. This was their family too, mm-hmm. you know? So I think we need to first start with respecting our healthcare workers that are working in this industry and and provide them, like I said, more support, more of those career ladders, more of the training and education. Um, boy, have I seen some creative things, though, from administrators, you know, what they do for their staff and the parties they throw for their staff. And, you know, they really work hard to, to keep their staff happy. Um, one, one facility I was at turned their entire, it was in, um, I think it was in Idaho, but they turned there, they had an entire break room with vending machines and all these cool things in it. Like it was just a really like a couch and it was just really cool, you know? And, and then as far as the residents, we do have activities directors. It's just, mm-hmm. and, and they, they do some amazing creative activities and, and um, things for our residents. It's just the last two years has been sidelined because we're trying to keep our residents safe and not have them spread COVID. But I mm-hmm. would say that we are definitely getting back to more of that, which is always, I remember it was in um, February of 21 when I saw it was Valentine's day. And when I saw the dining room decorated with hearts and I was like, 
you know, it was the first time in a year that I didn't see, you know, we were actually could see some sense of normalcy. And I literally was crying because I was like, oh my gosh, we're, we're getting there, you know, because like you mentioned, it was like, you know, caution tape and borders and blocked off rooms and blocked off units. And so we are definitely getting there, but, but just as a collective, you know, I, I guess my message you've, you've heard me already say it a dozen times is we, we need to invest in this healthcare. We need to invest with respect and dignity mm-hmm. for our, our workers. Um, and oh my gosh, our loved ones deserve that. Yes. Like we would not be where we are today without them. Right. Right. And I, I hope that didn't, I mean, like, I hope that didn't sound like I was trying to come down on like the people who are actually working there because I, yeah, I mean, I've seen firsthand how much they love and, and care about these patients, but it's like, there's just not enough of them, (laughs) you know? And, and, And what you're saying, you know, when I deliver my message and even writing my book, it's very delicate in the way you communicate advocacy because it seems very siloed. On one hand, you've got a group that's the patient advocate, which we need. Um, and then you've got the healthcare worker advocate. And to me, I'm all about both. But when you deliver the message, and even it's funny because like I've had articles written you know, about what I do and I always have to edit them because it, the words that are chosen make it look like I'm blaming the nursing home <laughs> for the care that's being delivered. So it's really fascinating that we have to, it's this delicate balance of even how we communicate this because the nursing homes are so used to being blamed for everything that that's kind of where the whole public perception goes. Mm-hmm. I've had people LinkedIn message me saying, shame on you for writing this book. Um, we shouldn't be blaming the nursing homes. I'm like, you didn't read my book because my book is advocating for the nursing <laughs> homes. Like read the book, you know, before you jump yeah. to that conclusion. So it's, it's, it can be tough for sure. So how do we get the right people engaged in, in making this change? Like, do you have the ear of any lobbyists or representatives or con- or like, yeah. how can, like, what can we do mm-hmm. right. as, as nurses too, to right. help start facilitating more change? Well, you know, there's a lot of change that's from the top that's advocating for the top down, you know, from the federal government all the way down. And, and we need that. And and I'll talk about that, but we also need it from the bottom up. So like, what can you say? Like, if you're working in a hospital right now, you can change the dialogue within your hospital. You can become an advocate for our long-term care and change the perception and start to part. And many, many hospitals do this. I, you know, I always want to say that like, this is not just, you know, we have some great, great hospitals that are amazing. You know, they have their own long-term care facilities, but I just talked to a regional director yesterday who was in in acute care infection prevention, and she's advocating for long-term care. So, you know, it's really, how do we, um, we like reach our hand out to our skilled facilities, to our long-term care and work with them. I'll just give you a little example. When I was collecting the C. diff data, when the first year of data came out, we saw that about half of the infections of C. diff came from the hospital. Well, when, and we had the data to show that, I mean, we were collecting the data and we showed that. 
But what's interesting is when I go and talk to the hospital partners, they say all of our infections come from the nursing homes. When I talk to the nursing home partners, they say all of our infections are coming from the hospitals. And it's Mm -hmm. not true. It was about equal. And so I think having that data to demonstrate that what's going on, it's not just like this care is horrible in nursing homes and all these infections are nursing homes. No, it happens in both. And they're transferred because we transfer our patients, right? And so I just think shifting our pers- our perspective, shifting the way that we talk to our workers, you know, the way we we talk to even our how we talk about our nurses and how they deliver care. And I think so from the hospital side, we can do a lot even as one person and helping to shift that um, that whole perception from a patient perspective or a, a patient advocate perspective from a family member. Um, In chapter 13, I talk about about this. And actually, in my book, my book is very well-rounded in the fact that I interviewed administrators, staff, patients, academic researchers, even people from the regulatory division. And I interviewed a mom that I had worked closely with bringing change to her nursing home. She had cared for her son, had um, a condition that kept him in a nursing home for over 20 years. And it was through her advocacy in that building that, I mean, this building had, before COVID had outbreaks of all sorts of infectious diseases. And it was her leadership and her advocacy that they ended up getting the Senator of Maryland in their facility. They were able to really create change within that facility through her leadership and advocacy. And so there's a patient count, there's um, the resident council meeting, patient advocacy meetings that your facility will have that the patient family members can go to. Um, Family council meeting is what they're called. And you can be, you can go, and I encourage you to be a part of the care planning for your loved one. Um, And, and it's the simple things too, like um, asking the nurses, what, is there anything I can bring you? Is there anything I can bring the residents that they might enjoy? I mean, on our dementia units, you know, they love the little stuffed kitty cats. They love the baby dolls. My husband's always asking, can I bring in puzzles? You know, like asking those simple things, it just shows the staff that you care and that you want to do something to support them. So there are small things that we can all do that don't require huge things from us, right? Um, so I would definitely encourage to start with that from from the, the public perspective. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that we were able to have your perspective and to like uncover this other side that I think you're right. Like our, our societies tends to just like go after the nursing home. So I'm so grateful that you can share your perspective and that, you know, I feel like our audience and we have like personal tangible things like next steps to kind of go forward too. So thank you so much for your time to uncover all yes, this and absolutely. share. Where can our listeners find you or find Broken? Yeah, so my book Broken is on Amazon. And if so, it's available in hardback, paperback, and the the Kindle version. Please buy the book and share it because I really feel like the more people that understand what's really occurring, that we can rally together and do more good. So um, that's where they can get the book. You can also find me at ipcwell.com and what we're doing in communities and helping nursing homes every single day. Um, it is truly our mission to to shift and change this industry 
And we partner with the, you know, the large um, nursing home associations. We, you know, we're really, we're, we're going to DC in June um, to a congressional briefing. So, I mean, we are right there um, making our voice known and, and sharing what needs to happen because we do need that top down too. We do need the people that are making federal decisions to truly understand what's occurring instead of just throwing those old, old punishing ways at the industry. Dr. Buffy, thank you so much for sharing your passion with us today and all the WOMED listeners. Very, very grateful that we were able to have this conversation and can't wait to order my copy of Broken. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate you. I'm obsessed with her. She's so badass, Danielle. I want to go. They're like going to do like a march or like they're meeting with Congress or something. They're going to D.C. And why aren't we? I mean, I know why we aren't having more marches like COVID, whatever. But I hope we get into more, more protests. Oh, honey, there's going to be a lot of shit to protest the next few months. So get your walking shoes ready. Seriously, there's going to be there's a lot of shit to protest right (laughs) now. Are they bionic? (laughs) Shameless plug. (laughs) Amazing. I love it. Well, I hope you guys loved that episode as much as we did. You can find all the links to Dr. Buffy in our show notes. You can find her book. You know, as always, every like, share, download, stream of the podcast truly helps us do what we love and that is building this community for all of you but till next week we love you womed out <laughs>